most people are only productive when they come to the office in the morning and after lunch mm. because then they've had breaks and after that productivity massively declines you see that most workers report only about three hours actual productivity per day welcome to the seamland podcast i'm your host seamland and our guest today is menno henselmans menno is an online physique coach researcher entrepreneur and bodybuilder this is a two-part podcast, and this is the second part in which we talk about Menno's new book called The Science of Self-Control. This episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is a healthy version of all the unhealthy cereal you loved as a child. It's very high in protein, low carbs, zero grams of sugar, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and with only natural flavors. The main ingredient is actually whey protein. There are many different versions of the nostalgic flavors such as frosted, fruity, cocoa, and peanut butter. My favorite one is the cocoa. They actually taste better than the original formulations with more crunchiness. Magic Spoon cereal gives you 0 grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only 4 net grams of carbs in each serving. If you want to try out Magic Spoon, then head over to magicspoon.com forward slash seam and use the code SIIM to get $5 off any order. Magic Spoon is so confident in the product that it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they're gonna refund your money, no questions asked. So head over to magicspoon.com forward slash seam and use the code SIIM to save $5 off your order. So your new book, The Science of Self-Control. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, given I think most people would expect uh, like a more bodybuilding type book about, yeah, like training mm-hmm. it's per se. So you actually came out with more like a like a mindset or mental side book uh, so yeah what made Mm -hmm. you decide that yeah actually i studied behavioral uh, economics which is in large part behavioral psychology so that's something i'd always been interested in and i have a strong academic background in and i always found it difficult to implement these things for a few reasons uh, into my my writings especially on facebook and instagram because for many of these things you first need to lay a foundation of how the human mind works And if you don't have that in place, then it's very difficult to discuss anything, especially on social media. Mm. And this book basically made me get all of the things that I accumulated for a very long time, put them together, and then mix them with more new information uh, and publish that. So that's, I think, uh, the, the the main drive of how it's gone. It's just a much better way to, to tell the whole story without, um, confusing people and there's also research by the way from psychology psychology is one of those things just like nutrition that everybody has a strong opinion about even if they have very little knowledge on the topic no done no formal training or no 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 actual research on the topic because it seems so intuitive Mm. and there's an actual effect that's also been studied in in psychology which says or shows that when people are told the outcome of a psychological study they almost always go like, oh, yeah, duh. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> and when you ask them in advance to predict what people would do in a study, then people really cannot tell well. Hmm. So that was also why I've been hesitant to publish much about psychology and stuff, because it's like people always think, oh, yeah, of course. And people always also think that because it's a more soft science, psychology, compared to a beta, harder science, like exercise physiology, people think, it's subjective, but it is an empirical science. So there are a lot of things where you say, sure, um, for example, beauty standards. Beauty is subjective, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know, there's no such thing as objective beauty. Well, you know, there are actually a few indicators that are 
consistent across cultures, lifespan, decades of research, such as waist to hip ratio in women. Mm. Um, th these things, you know, have an evolutionary basis. And uh, even though, of course, they vary per individual, it's not like it's, it's just up for grabs. You know, everyone has their own opinion and there's no trend to be found. There's mm. actually a very strong trend and we can predict quite well, for example, um, if, if we show a picture of a certain person, then science could, could predict quite well what the average rating of various bodily features of that person uh, would be with reasonable accuracy, at least on a group level. Mm -hmm. So yeah, right. that's uh, a lot of reasons why I, I chose to keep the psychology to myself until I, I got it all out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that, you know, there's this, this misconception about willpower being a muscle. So can you clarify that? Um, I think that's what the main, most, most uh, often people have idea of as willpower. Yes, many people think that uh, because of the original Roy Baumeister, Baumeister model, um, willpower is sort of like a fat. It's like in your brain, this is the, the willpower fat. And when you use it, 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 you use some. And then when it's empty, you are screwed. And it seems to work a bit like that because like I said, the anterior cingulate cortex is actually monitoring your happiness. So the, the VAT is sort of your happiness level. But the crucial difference is that when you know that it's happiness that's driving the, uh, or that's the limitation, that means A, there is no actual physical limitation. So if you're motivated to do something and everyone can experience this for themselves, when they're doing something they love, you can keep doing it for a very long time, much longer than if you're filing your taxes. I mean, allegedly, there, there are people that make taxes their, their employment and they like it. Um, but I think for most people, they, they don't like filing taxes. So you're going to have a hard time sticking to, to that and keeping your concentration. right? And that is a general finding that basically means that the Baumeister model is wrong, that motivation modul strongly modulates the effect of task fatigue. And there appears to be essentially no task fatigue when people are highly motivated to do something. Mm. And there are a few more findings like that. And like I said, the, the carp rinsing studies are also mm. a strong line of evidence showing that because in the Baumeister model, they thought it was glucose that uh, was sort of the willpower fat. And then they showed, well, you do get the replenishment, but without the actual glucose consumption. So mm. it's probably not a metabolic effect. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh... I think yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people there, yeah, like if they're super motivated to do something, then uh, yeah, it doesn't feel tiring. Or if you love what you do, like work or mm -hmm. things, then you can do it for hours without getting tired. Whereas yeah, like, <laughs> if you do something that you hate, like, you know, even in school, like uh, I remember when I was school, mm -hmm. in like high school or whatever, then, you know, reading was super boring or <laughs> super difficult. But then now if I'm reading like papers, I can read papers for like hours and hours about any kind of study. So um, yeah, it does. Yeah, like that's very yeah. Depends on like the motivation level and like that kind of thing. Definitely, and uh, another big finding, which also very has strong practical implications, is that fatigue is incredibly task specific. So when you're reading a certain book that you don't like, then you get really fed up with that, and your brain is essentially seeking for things that provide more instant gratification. Like it's literally, if you put someone in uh, cognitive neuroscientific scanners for this um, and even well let's leave that for now. let's say you, you scan someone's brain and you can actually see that it lights up the reward pathways more when you show them things like a dollar sign or food hmm. like the brain is literally uh, sensitized it's like looking for 
something, anything that makes us feel better right now, because what we're doing now is, is not uh, doing the job. And that means right. that you can also prevent willpower failure very effectively by switching up your tasks and mm. taking breaks. It's probably mm. one of the, the, the biggest overall recommendations of my book is that most people work too much. They take too few breaks and they just try to keep pushing on. And that's mm. very much ingrained in our society with the eight hour workday. And you really see the effect of that where most people are only productive when they come to the office in the morning and after lunch, mm. because then they've had breaks. And after that productivity massively declines, you see that most workers report only about three hours actual productivity per day. In some surveys, I think it, it's two hours, uh, two hours and 30 minutes or something. So if you, you have your average employee, you pay them eight hours a day, but they only work 2.5 actual hours. And that's because you keep them locked up in a cubicle, uh, forcing them to work. Whereas if you give them more freedom, you allow them to switch their tasks, they can actually get the same job done or even more, much more efficiently uh, with um, less time investment. Hmm. Right. So the key is to you know initially find what you like to do, <laughs> but if you if you can't mm -hmm. if you if you aren't able to do that like you're, yeah you're supposed to do your taxes or whatever uh, that you hate uh, or something else or studying in school uh, that you need to do like what are some of the tips to uh, increase self control and uh, willpower there? Uh, a few things you can do um, are to get familiar with the feeling of mental fatigue and stop working when you get that feeling and then implement uh, some pleasurable break activity. Anything that makes you feel better. Research has found that prayer, cold showers, um, watching a series, mm. like literally pretty much anything that just makes you feel better or that takes your mind off things. And I found that video games are actually incredibly effective because they are designed to be very immersive. Mm. They're a bit like meditation in the sense that they, they're even more effective than meditation because with meditation, you have to actively sort of empty your mind yourself by focusing. Mm. The video game does it for you. It's designed to get your full maximum attention. You know, you don't even notice there are other people in the room and stuff. Um, and then just in 20 minutes, if you stop, you, you don't need a very important, you don't need a non-addictive kind of video mm. game. Mm -hmm. Then you, you stop and you can uh, get to work again and you are... It's like your your mind is reset. Like you're, you've cleaned your cache in the computer analogy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, I think that's a, like a slippery slope as well. That you can get uh, stuck into the other end. That you like watch an entire like season of a mm -hmm. TV series or a play uh, like three hours or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I think you need you, well you know, delineated breaks. Yeah, you need to know your weaknesses as well and um, maybe put in some uh, yeah like structure or boundaries to those activities as well. Yes, and select them so that, for example, you watch a series that's only 20 minutes. Mm, yeah. Uh, use, you can use alarms, like the, then there is still some willpower involved. Of course, you know, there, there's no magic, uh, there's no magic trick, but um, in my book, I do go into a lot of actual practical things that work and have been found in scientific research to work um, that make things easier and at the minimum can get you the same work done in a lot less time. Even when we're still on the topic of like you know nutrition and uh, things, uh, so dieting 
mm-hmm. actually is very difficult for a lot of people for the fundamental side, actually, especially like even not from the physical side. So like avoiding temptations and having the self-control to not eat the cookie and things like that. So how do you go mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, there, I, I go into that in a, in a lot of detail as well. And avoiding temptations is a big one. And you, you already basically touched on the, the key principle here, and that's to avoid them. Mm. Research has found that the people with the most self-control actually use it the least. Mm. And being successful for most people is not a matter of relying on your self-control and discipline. And I think that's a crucial failure of the idea that willpower is like a muscle. The implication of that would be that you need to train it. Mm. Well, look at anyone that's dieted and just look at how successful they become over time. If willpower was like a muscle, you should get better at it over time. Mm. People do not get better at dieting if they do not receive the proper instructions. They relapse, they relapse, they relapse, regain all the weight, and over time they just get fatter most mm. of the time. So if you know if you compare that with what happens when you train a muscle, it gets stronger, stronger, stronger. Even if you don't do it well, at least you get some results. But that's not at all what happens. In reality, you should do the opposite. You should know that even though you even if you have strong willpower, you should rely on it as little as possible. Because even if you can rely on it, it's unpleasant. Relying on willpower is inherently an unpleasant thing. It literally makes your brain reduce your, your level of positive affect. So you should avoid temptation as much as possible, like not having food visible, uh, not buying things that um, you don't want to eat. Uh, there are loads of ways that you can make your diet, staying very satiated. That are, uh, that's not a big part of the book, like how you optimize your appetite control. Um, it's just really important not to have to use it too much, basically. Right. Yeah. And does that mean, like, how do you not use it? Let's say if you're sitting in front of a cake, mm-hmm. you, then you can't not, not use it. You, you, you have to use it to not eat the cake. Uh, so yeah. What do you, what if you're do you sitting do? in front of a cake, there are actually a few things that you can still do uh, that researchers looked at. You can implement what's called episodic future thinking. What's, uh, that means that you're imagining what your next meal is going to be. And that basically makes the comparison more salient in your brain. So it makes you realize, okay, now I could eat the cake. Another thing that you can do, and you can combine it with this, is thinking of the energy density of whatever you're going to eat. That's a good habit to get for doing. Like how many calories per 100 grams does this have? With a cake, it's probably four to 600. And you think, okay, I could have one slice of the cake. Uh, I still won't be full. And that's say 400 to 600 calories. Or I could wait a bit now and in two hours, I'm home and then I have this nice pasta dish or whatever ketogenic bowl with uh, meat and uh, veggies prepared and low calorie allows me to stick to my diet. It's healthy. I also like eating that. You know, I just wait two hours. And when you think of it that way, you can make a much more rational choice. Effectively, what it does is it engages your system to a more rational part of your brain. And that allows you to make the decision much more consciously. Uh, Another few things you can do are you can literally push the cake away. This serves as a psychological affirmation um, of rejection and actually mm. uh, can help you not consume it. Mm. You can also verbally commit to not eating it because in social groups in particular, many people are hesitant and that doesn't work. You have to be firm with your beliefs. And even, even if you're not necessarily convincing others, which you can, which is also very effective, then you have to very firmly show that, you know, these are your beliefs. I'm not a person that eats cake. Mm. Um, because if you're like, yeah, yeah, no, or you make up some, some lame excuse, like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm feeling a bit nauseous, 
then they're going to be like, have a, have, a, have a piece, you know, like have a piece. Yeah. And at some point you're going to succumb and then other people will also know you're weak. And if they keep pushing, then you're going to eat the cake and it makes them feel better about themselves right. also eating the cake. So you're going to be in this vicious cycle where a lot of people actually don't want to eat the cake, but everyone's doing it because it makes everyone <laughs> feel less bad. Yeah. Whereas if there was one person that stood up and said, uh, look, guys, why do we have all this crap in the office? Uh, shall we just eat a little healthier? Uh, or about we have some options, you know, mm. for people that want to eat healthier. Then you can uh, actually convince others to maybe uh, join you in living a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, you know, there's uh, different social dynamics at play in a group setting where usually there's this, yeah, like collective, let's say, group decision of, you know, that's we do eat cake or we don't or we're, or, or we're mm -hmm. like a he healthy group. And what determines that is, yeah, like someone has to take the initiative or uh, a lot of times people, yeah, like just succumb to the standards of the collective uh, thinking that this, this is what they, this uh, group is representing. But if, yeah, let's, there is someone who raises or changes those uh, standards, then uh, the entire group will change as well their behavior to, so it's a very, yeah. like, yeah, social dynamics. It's interesting that a fun tangent fact uh, about this in current political discussions, mm. uh, research shows that Nobody, uh, not a single political group, feels confident about voicing their beliefs publicly, except the far left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And that's, I think, very visible. But the result of that is that a lot of people actually even voice opinions that they don't fully agree with, or uh, just you never hear from them. And you only hear from a tiny minority of people that are very vocal about mm. political issues. And is often also listed by partisanship with the far right and far left. It makes it think like those are the only people in the world where right. in reality there's a big center. And it's the same with nutrition and dieting at the office. You know, mm. you're not the only person, if you're like in the middle, that wants to eat a bit healthier, but also yeah. uh, maybe not be super strict, then there probably there are a lot of people like you. But mm. if everyone's silent because there's one person that's like, everyone cake, you know, uh, uh, what are you fat shaming? Then, yeah. um, it, it's it's going to result in a lot of people actually doing something they don't like, even though that might be the majority opinion. Mm, yeah, I, I want to ask a question. Like, you know, what is from a self-control perspective, like which is more difficult to say no to the entire cake, or just you not know, eat one piece and not eat the rest of it, or you know, or take one bite even just out of the cake and not take any more? So, what, what do you think is more difficult from the uh, self-control perspective? I think stopping is actually more difficult. Right. So for most people, it's easier not to eat it at all, because once you've had the taste, you want more, mm. and it doesn't satiate. That that's the issue. Like if you eat something that won't satiate you, you're it's like you're just tormenting yourself because now you know how good it tastes, and you started eating, and it's also easy. Uh, if you don't have clear boundaries for yourself, you're constantly having to rely on will control. Whereas if you do have clear boundaries, then you can also make it a habit. Right? At some point, if, if I get offered a cake, there is very little self-control required because I'm not even actually considering eating the cake. Mm. Like I just automatically reject. Yeah. And when you get to that level, you can with that habit formation, then there is no self-control anymore at all, ideally. Mm -hmm. And if you're always deciding whether you're going to have one bite, two bites, three bites, then you always have to rely on self-control. And every bite you have to reevaluate. And every bite you get weaker because you get more and more depleted. And at some point, you get the screw bit effect where you're just like, oh, I'll have to look okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, like just avoiding is actually much easier uh, because 
you, you're like yeah once you are in the role or like the momentum is on your side then it's very easy to like stick to the diet it's, it's more often than not people you know go off the rails completely if they yeah, like have an actual little cheat meal or whatever and then they go off like the rails completely like rebounding from mm -hmm. that but it's very relatively easy if you get into the groove of it uh, after a while mm -hmm. Any, any any tips on like getting back on track like if you lost your self-control completely and uh, how do you get back on track the most important thing is to not to think of yourself as a failure it's a skill so you messed up and that's normal because dieting is a skill that you need to learn and it takes a lot of experience you need to think of failure as a learning experience as feedback it's like you're it's information like this allows you to get better and the most important thing is just to reflect, think, why did I mess up? Why did I overeat? Why did I have that cake? And then, for example, you may think, because I skipped lunch. Okay, lesson learned. Don't go into scenarios where you're going to be tempted with uh, social, social eating events when you're hungry. Mm -hmm. And then reflect on that. Okay, make sure that doesn't happen again. And the next day, you just continue as planned. For most people, research finds it's better to just get back on track don't try to compensate for anything mm. reflect learn continue as planned as if mm. it didn't happen yeah yeah like some people may like fast for let's say another day and not eat anything and then <laughs> when they break the fast then they right. break the cycle again and lose it so yeah so yeah dangerous in, in excess that uh, essentially turns into binge purge binge purge cycles yeah that's right um but um from the is there like any specific macros like you know a lot of there's this you know saying that the sugar is like super addictive and uh, you can't control yourself and eat it as well what does the science say about it actually about sugar addiction i mean like sugar and self-control like is it is it more likely to lose the self-control uh, when you're eating carbs and sugar uh, compared to let's say protein or fat not not inherently there's no such thing as addictive food you can only be addicted to eating itself, but not to any particular food, even chocolate. Mm. And even research on uh, pregnant women, and actually very conclusively, I have a whole section on uh, pregnancy in, in the book. You can see that there are massive cross-cultural effects, and it's all uh, restricted to ideal, especially American culture, what, what American culture has led us to believe about what you should eat when you're pregnant, and what a common food aversion happens to be, blah, blah, blah. Um, Uh, sorry, it's uh, I'm losing the audio a little bit. I think the internet was uh, hacking a bit. Uh, Where did it uh, drop off? The pregnant pregnant women. Right. Uh, let me see. Yeah, there's a lot of research also on pregnancy. For example, I have a whole section in the book on um, what pregnant women eat and what kind of food aversions they have. And there you can see it's it's all cultural, and mm. we are so strongly influenced by what, especially American culture, like United States uh, American culture has led us to believe about what's normal and what are uh, common food aversions and the like. That said, any food that is highly palatable, which most high-carb foods are, is going to activate your brain's reward pathways more than other foods, which are generally not as palatable, such as typically protein. So in practice, it is the case that many high-carb foods, in particular starches, because fruits and veggies definitely do not fulfill this category, but, you know, uh, bread, 
rice. Uh, potatoes are kind of in the middle, but especially like fried potatoes, they would. Uh, they are just very easy to overeat on. And they are, they are generally relatively well liked or just, just very easy to eat for most people. So many people do have greater difficulties restricting those when they're eating them compared to say high protein foods, vegetables, uh, fibrous fruits, and even high fat foods. It depends on whether they're processed for the most part because you won't find many people overeating on avocado or olives, mm. but um, you'll definitely um, have difficulty with like full fat uh, pork sausages. Yeah. Those are again also super easy to overeat on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like there's, I, I think yeah, like it's the ultra processed foods, which is like the new term that uh, these hyper palatable engineered foods uh, that with mm. all these different ingredients, that's like the main cause, not like specific like carbs or sugar or uh, whatever. It's the ultra processing that kind of makes them super hyper palatable and uh, that generally even even on. on then being a part of a diet increases the total calories you consume on a daily basis because they're generally higher in calories as well. Yes, definitely. Hmm. Uh, any, like, you know, how long does it take to, let's say, build or develop self-control? Like, because, you know, there is some aspects of neuroplasticity that is still a play, play that your brain does mm -hmm. change to a certain extent. So, like, um, how long does it take and, you know, to what degree does it change? Well, your actual level of self-control is basically fixed. There's very little yeah. you can do to improve it. However, you can reduce your reliance on it majorly, and that's much more effective. And it generally takes, like, if we're, if we're talking timeframes, I think one of the only timeframes that might provide some use is the timeframe that it typically takes to build a habit, which is about three months. Uh, it depends a lot on the habit, though, and the number of repetitions. But... In three months, you can make major changes to how you engage with your, your own discipline level because you can replace a lot of things with habits. Uh, you, can use, you can learn to use implementation intentions in the meantime to uh, effectively form quick habits in your brain, like if-then rules um, that decide your, your actions. And you can learn a lot of psychological tricks um, in, in a relatively short period that make a very big, notable difference in your life hmm. but but what what is going on if let's say if someone if person if a person let's say i don't know in the past they used to be you know maybe like very like you know they say things out loud immediately what they think for example uh, but then mm -hmm. but nowadays maybe they're like more you know reserved or they're um, not saying out loud let's say not they're not um, i don't know insulting people or they don't get angry as much like what is what is involved what's going on there if, if a person doesn't get angry let's say in traffic uh as much as they used to in the past or vice versa like they, they, they now get angry but they didn't in the past like if, if those kind of changes happen like what is going on there yeah that's i'm not sure how much that relies to self that's a difficult that's a big mixture of self-control habits social norms um like anger management um, is in large part probably also about your own level of happiness, how you mm. deal with other people, your social norms, experience, just having a lot of feedback that um, you know, your anger outburst didn't help at all, uh, or they just made people worse off, or maybe you even hurt someone. So I think 
that's it becomes a lot more more difficult when you when you get to uh, um, a, a social phenomenon like that. But it's definitely not going to be because your self control itself felt better. Mm. Like maybe you learned how to. I think that's probably one of the big ones also. How you learned not to. You learned your own boundaries basically. Mm. I think that's much more important than trying to improve your boundaries because most people really don't need for most things you don't need super high levels of self-discipline you just need to be smart about doing them so that you don't need extreme discipline yeah <laughs> yeah well eventually uh, it's gonna break or uh, if you like if you have after yeah, like it's so true that what you said that uh, the people who have the most self-control actually don't use it that much uh, and mm-hmm. with, with discipline as well who people who seem that they're like super disciplined then they may not actually be like literally using their discipline all the time because they have like this uh, routine and habits that exactly. uh, still allow them to do those things but they're not like actively every day like you know <laughs> doing things against their will uh, to get it done so because it's not like sustainable so that's why they have to create these uh, systems and uh, routines that uh, put this like almost an autopilot that uh, they do it still regardless definitely it's like the more disorganized you are the more you should structure your life to compensate for that Hmm. and if you're a naturally super organized person then you won't need to organize your life as much but you can compensate for lack of being inherently organized by providing more structure to your life intentionally Hmm. yeah so it's like the conscientiousness uh is a a good trait (laughs) is is there a way to build that or increase it no that's pretty much also fixed that's uh (laughs) It's, and conscientiousness is strongly uh, correlated with self-control ability. Nice. That's, <laughs> so what, what can you change then? You can only change your habits and routines then. Yeah, but you don't need to uh, because self-control is not you know, really limited in the first place. I think mm. it's not physically limited. It's just related to your happiness. So mm. it all comes down to uh, ways to set your life up smarter and um, be happier in the process. And then you'll find that your actual self-control ability might, as a result of that, improve a bit. But that should not be the goal. It should be to um, not use it most of the time. Mm. To be re- replace it with habits, structures, etc. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there like any studies looking at whether the belief of whether, whether or not you have self-control or whether or not you have like this unlimited willpower or it's limited, uh, looking at, you know, does that affect the results of that? If a, if a person has the belief that they that they have this uh, finite willpower, does it actually you know change their behavior or make them less self-controlled, for example, or have less willpower? Mm-hmm. I have a hard stop in uh, one minute, by the way. Okay. But um, yes, there are actually studies by Veronica Job et al. Uh, before first name is Veronica, um, which are really conclusively show about to make it full circle about carbohydrates specifically, for example. That people that think that self-control is a limited ability, they actually benefit from consuming carbohydrates. Whereas people that don't think this, they don't benefit from consuming carbohydrates. Okay. So that really goes back to the original idea of uh, a large part of it being mental. And this, this idea that you can't succeed is already a very big obstacle to your success in the first place. Gotcha. Well, all right. We'll finish there. <laughs> uh, the book is on Amazon, right? Yep, on my Amazon, my website is available as an audiobook, an ebook, and on Amazon you can Amazon you can buy a paperback or a hard cover. All right. Well, it was great talking with you, and yeah, I'm gonna let you go. <laughs> my pleasure. All, All right. right. See ya.
Bye. All right, that's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.